0: Hello, everybody. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but it also has considerable expenses. In order to continue bringing you the in-depth author interviews that you count on, we have to pay our bills. So we'd like you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the network. It's easy to do. Just go to any NBN page and follow the donation link. Since we're part of Amherst College Library, you'll be taken to an Amherst College Library page. Hello, everybody. I'm Marshall Poe, the Editor-in-Chief of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but it also has considerable expenses. In order to continue bringing you the in-depth author interviews that you count on, we have to pay our bills. So we'd like you to consider making a tax-deductible contribution to the network. It's easy to do. Just go to any NBN page and follow the donation link. Since we're part of Amherst College Library, you'll be taken to an Amherst College Library page. Go to the NBN line on that page and follow the instructions. That's it. From all of us at the network, thanks for your support. Hello, everyone, and welcome
1: to the New Books in Digital Culture podcast. I'm Chris Baranyuk, your ever-intrepid host, who also happens to be editor of TheMachineStarts.com. Well, it's been a few weeks since our pilot episode, but a series of New Books in Digital Culture programs will be reaching you this summer, so now's the time to subscribe to that RSS feed. Today's book is by writer and artist Mark Stephen Meadows, and it's called We Robot, Skywalker's Hand, Blade Runners, Iron Man, Slutbots, and How Fiction Became Fact. That's certainly one of the best subtitles I've read in a while, and it stresses one of the main features of this book, that is, an eagerness to draw parallels between science fiction and science fact, and indeed to go further, predicting the robotic future that awaits us all. Well, joining me on the line from his boat somewhere in Nicaragua in order to tell us more is Mark Stephen Meadows himself. Mark, thanks so much for being here.
2: Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here, Chris. Thank you very much. It's an honor.
1: Excellent. Well, let's talk about the thing that struck me first uh, the most when I was reading this book. And and that is how it paints a a really detailed uh, picture of the robotic landscape on Earth right now. You know, what bots are out there, which ones are in development, and how different they all are and how diverse. Maybe you could just start by going into a little bit of detail on that, because I think that's one of the things that might surprise a reader who only has a kind of rudimentary knowledge of robotics so far.
2: Yeah, I mean it's a strange thing because we have some work that is extremely advanced such as legitimate androids that are being developed, androids that look like the people that have authored these same systems, uh, almost like a, a cybernetic twin. Um, We have also robots that don't look like anything. They don't even have a physical presence, such as these kinds of non-player character phone robots that are constantly hassling us and preventing us from doing what we want to do during the day. Mm. Um, We have robots that are very small, uh, kind of gelatinous objects that are used for surgery or used for surveillance to move underneath the door. Um, we have robots that are things that look more like planes, as UAVs. And we also have UAVs that are as small as hummingbirds now. We're really finding that there's kind of a biodiversity that's occurred. And like global warming, I think these robots have appeared around us quickly. And I think I, at least for one, am just trying to get my head around what's going on here.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And because you're coming to this subject um, predominantly from a kind of a viewpoint informed very much by science fiction – a lot of the ideas about what robots could do and can do come from movies and books that you talk about in the book. And in a lot of those movies and books, robots are not necessarily our friends. Robots are actually quite threatening uh, features of certain stories. Um, And I think one of the most interesting things and one of the best ways of bringing up this subject, as you do, is to talk about the origins of those characters in science fiction. Tell us a little bit about where... Um, robots come from in a kind of literary sense.
2: Yeah, I mean, originally uh, there was a playwright back, I think it was in the 1920s, Carl uh, Kapak, who was using the word robot. Uh, it's a Czech as, word, isn't it? Yeah, and it, it means worker or labor. Um, and I, I think what's interesting about this is that we have, as all science fiction, um, in this play, which is called Rossum's Universal Robots, Uh, there was a notion that was proposed, and that notion was actually a reflection on the state of society. This author was saying, here's what we have as a problem in factories and with essentially slave labor camps in Europe, and I'm going to write a book about this. And in writing that book and addressing that topic as a science fiction author, his reflections were quickly implemented in reality. And now the word robot is something that is much more famous in the play. So there's a cycle that occurs in which... These nerve endings of society, nerve endings of culture, which are the, the authors and the artists and, the, and the, particularly this playwright, he's doing his job and saying, I see something appearing. And by saying, I see it appearing, that becomes actual engineering fact. The science fiction and the engineering fact seem to me to be an almost kind of a yin-yang spin cycle where one is propagating the existence and encouraging the, and strengthening the other. So it's a very interesting dynamic. Robots are fundamentally human, and the book is titled We Robot because it's about us.
1: Well, they are portrayed as threats in a lot of stories, uh, like in the works of Asimov and in more recent fiction like The Terminator. So I did want to ask you about this whole concept of otherness in robots, because what you go into in the first chapter of the book uh, are the are the military applications of robots and people's uh, you know really deeply held fear of robot as destructor you know, a kind of sentient weapon?
2: Yeah, I, th- there's something odd that human beings have uh, where there's almost like an instinct, and if we see someone that's a little bit different from us, it seems to me as though we have a, a violent reaction. There's this theory in robotics called the Uncanny Valley. It's a it's a well known theory that was proposed uh, by a Japanese robotics inventor named Mori. And what he says is that as as a robot, and, and he includes other things as well as robots, but as it approaches human likeness, as it gets to look more and more like a human in terms of its appearance and its movement, we're fine with that up until it gets close to looking real. And then there's this kind of a, a neural fart that happens. There's some kind of a, a dissonance mentally that we have where we say, this thing is close enough to me It's like me, but it's enough different that I need to be afraid of it. Now, that is something that I think is at the core of what makes the Terminator, for example, so frightening. Because it looks like us, but it's just different enough that it needs to be some kind of an enemy. And I've had, you know, months of conversation with experts on the topic. And and my own personal belief is that it's an instinctual thing that goes all the way back to when, you know neanderthals were roaming the planet because they were close to what our species was like but just enough different that we needed to be able to recognize them quickly to defend the cave that's my own personal riff on this i don't know where this comes from i don't think anybody really does but we are finding that because robots look a little bit like us we have some kind of a strong reaction to them and again i think that's actually because they are us they are some kind of extension of us
1: Mm. And it's entirely appropriate that you know Arnold Schwarzenegger should have played the Terminator, really, because a lot of people have that kind of knee-jerk reaction to bodybuilders and people whose you know muscular anatomy is kind of augmented to an extreme state. It, it is uncanny to us. That is a that is an extreme, and we do react to those extremes. You talk about you know people's kind of gut reactions to very bad cosmetic surgery, for example, in the book as a as an example of how that play of the uncanny can happen in in other humans who are like us but with whom we kind of implicitly disagree
2: yeah i mean there's a very there i think there is not just an uncanny valley but i think there's a whole uncanny landscape around us um of canyons and valleys and Mm -hmm. and as as robots get to look more and more human we get a little bit spooked by them as i mentioned and that's where the classic uncanny valley theory has focused but then the other side of that uncanny valley appears. I mean, there's certainly women that I've met who have had unfortunate experiences with plastic surgery, whether they're aware of it or not. And when I notice that their lips aren't moving appropriately, that same uncanny valley reaction hits me as strongly as android robots that I've talked to in Japan. So so I think that, that really the uncanny valley has more to do with how does technology intersect with the human body and how are we adopting it into us and us into it. Because it's certainly a, a two-directional, it's a three-dimensional landscape that, that we're exploring here with technology, you know?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, to go back to some of the kind of imagined fears that can kind of grow out of some of those reactions that we're talking about to very, you know, subtle uh, aspects of a robot – there is this great grander idea of of the robot as a as a real threat not just to an individual but to all mankind and that's how it's kind of sometimes perceived culturally with these very negative um, interpretations of roboticists as a, you know you mentioned Dr. Frankenstein as a kind of you know possible uh, parallel to some of the people who are coming up with these designs, but the military has a really Serious vested interest in robotics. Tell us why that is.
2: Well, I think it has to do with the fact that automation really improves killing. I mean, um, the machine gun has shown us that uh, when you introduce technology into a war, uh, automated technology in particular, the uh, efficiency of production, of death, let's say, and the amount of money that can be made through manufacturing and supplying the weaponry, is a, a, a formula that's very hard to look away from. So not only do you make more money in the war, but you're actually able to achieve the goal of the war more quickly. Um, for me, the the threat to man and the theme that runs through robotics is there simply because we know on some level that it's people on the other side of the robot. That's, that, that threat is not, I think, a threat of a piece of metal. It's the threat of the person using the piece of metal as a weapon,
1: and, and the media are very quick to kind of jump on instances where robots seem to be retaliating or, you know, offering uh, ways of retaliating against us. So there was a very um, serious and widely reported incident in South Africa in 2009, I think, or no, it was 2007, mm-hmm. um, uh, in which nine soldiers were killed when a automated uh, machine gunning robot. Uh, went berserk essentially and jammed, then started shooting in the wrong directions. Now this was uh, a very very difficult incident to kind of understand, but obviously the idea of a uh, the idea of that accident being so you know the magnitude of it being so great was very difficult for people to start to kind of conceptualize because well suddenly the technology is here it's being used. Um, but when it goes wrong, we don't know really who's, who's accountable and we don't necessarily have the the tools to prevent that. So, you know, obviously there's this, uh, it's this, what you talk about a lot is this trust that we have to put in the machines to whom we, uh, you know, devolve certain decision-making processes
2: yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's an enormous moral gap that's opening up in front of us in which if if you have, for example, you know, let's just take Arnold Schwarzenegger and put like 500 of them on the battlefield and they're walking around in Afghanistan and one of them gets it in his head. By the way, this is, this is also a science fiction scenario uh, that's, a, that's in iRobot. And of course, you know, uh, autonomy and unpredictability are things that are closely linked. And so the more autonomous we make a robot, the less predictable it's going to be. And if that robot then turns around and starts shooting at the, at the good guys, <laughs> to keep it simple, then yeah, that presents a problem. But the moral question there is that the robot himself probably isn't the one that's responsible. Is it the robot manufacturer? Is it the, the, the software engineer? Is it the person that hired the software engineer? Is it the general that said, let's send these robots out onto the battlefield? Peter Singer, by the way, in Wired for War, does a fantastic job of addressing some of these questions. And I think what we really need to ask ourselves is, what is the agency? Because if, if I take a robot that is something that I'm controlling from a distance, and that is then a representation of my agency, what I'm doing is I'm also taking my humanity and I'm removing it. Because as soon as we begin to operate remotely on a battlefield, the morality is also operating remotely. And that means it's going to be increasingly difficult for nations to establish trust and for for what are generally considered rules of war to be followed. Um, the assassination of bin Laden is a recent example that was done with people. But there was a lot of UAV technology that was used in that attack. Um, and not all of it was ostensibly legal i mean the united states as other countries are oftentimes flying over borders with remote drones taking a look collecting information coming back and then sending in people so these these remote agencies are really beginning to open up these big chasms of morality about responsibility so
1: this kind of leads me on to one of the most chilling observations you made as you were just talking about the kind of the moral implications here and 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 this is a the the comment that you made in, in in the book when you're talking about wars facilitated by machines, um, you said that wars usually come to an end when a lot of people on the on the aggressive side die, um, and then you imagine a scenario where in the future, well, there actually aren't going to be people, there aren't going to be citizens, like biological citizens anyway, fighting on the front line, so. It's just machinery getting torn up out there. It's not actual human lives. So the public's and the politicians' inclination to hold back on starting a war or to think very carefully about making aggressive advancements in any territory, maybe their inclination to think very carefully about that will be greatly diminished. And they won't think too hard about making those advancements and those inroads. And that, I think, has really serious implications for how, you know, war in general, conflict uh, management in general, develops over the course of the next century.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Because the the thing there isn't, well, we could argue, and I think with fairly firm footing, that both the Iraq War and the Vietnam War here in the United States, or there in the United States, um, was brought down as a result of, photographs about people dying but you know it's funny because i go to the movies and yeah there are people that die in movies all the time but more and more american movies seem to be about large machinery blowing up and it's almost like a stimulating kind of yay it blew up experience what i'm trying to point to here is that i don't think that in the future as robots are being blown up on battlefields we will feel loss Mm -hmm. but in fact it will be the opposite i think that we will feel gain So suddenly the equation of war gets almost pulled inside out, in which the more loss and explosions happen overseas, the more the engineers that are building those systems will feel just fine about it. We will feel as though, oh, we can now deploy our next upgrade now that we've learned why that one isn't working as well as it could. And meanwhile, there'll be human beings hiding behind trees trying to blow these machines up. So there's something almost like in the movie Avatar (laughs) that I'm getting a little bit concerned about. And I don't want to Want to walk out onto some kind of plank uh, here that's just absurd. But as I play out the scenarios and as I look at what's happening right now in places like Afghanistan, there is just the, the guys in Afghanistan can't get enough UAVs. Those drones are getting deployed at a faster and faster rate. The number of missions are going up. The ability to uh, fight against them is certainly asymmetrical. Um, and So what that seems to me to imply is that maybe another 30 or 40 years from now, as certainly other countries are developing similar technologies, we're going to see such dramatically asymmetrical warfare that the more wars are conducted, the more profitable it becomes for a number of industries. And so it looks to me as though there's something very strange happening right now. I think this is actually more important than the invention of the machine gun in terms of how warfare will be fought.
1: It's a really, really interesting point. And it's not as if we're just talking about future stuff. I mean, as you say, this is already hugely significant in how certain conflicts uh, in the Middle East and, and neighboring regions are being played out today. So this is this is a characteristic problem with, you know, new technology. It kind of gets rushed into service. And then we start to think about the implications later. Uh, there's a really interesting point in your book when you mention the Japanese parliament trying to preempt some of the problems that could arise with you know, robots that accidentally kill or injure people so that the legislation isn't too reactionary. It's actually preventative.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that makes some some sense, but I don't think a lot of people are going to be following it. And I think that the bottom line is that uh, it's not that robots are a species that we can control. Robots are really just computers, right? Mm. It's, and, and I want to just say that in the simplest fashion possible. There are a number of definitions of what robots are, but I think fundamentally they're computers. And we're finding that computers can be very dangerous. So as, as we try to apply legislation, we will find that that some of that will will, will work for some countries, but it's not going to work for everybody, and not everyone's going to be following it, especially when it comes to these exploratory, radical new frontiers such as warfare. I, I think that what, what we need to also keep in mind is that this myth of robots should be punctured. And, and as soon as that balloon is deflated, we find that the form that really is underneath it is something that is just a human face. I think that the, the solution to this kind of a problem where robots are producing asymmetrical warfare and where technology is moving so far ahead in one population that another population has no clue what's going on, let alone when it gets attacked how to defend – is to open source as much of this as possible. Um, now, it might be because I'm an American, but I really enjoy the notion that everyone has access to arms. Everyone has access to this kind of software and hardware, and it actually isn't that hard to build robots. You can build automated guns, and you can build remote control surveillance systems that are able to trigger explosives for very little money with publicly available technology you can download off the, off the internet. Now. This means that suddenly warfare breaks out everywhere. That's what that's what I think the response might be. But I'm not necessarily sure that that's the case. I think that provided that you understand that your neighbor has the same capacity as you have, that might give you second thought to invade. So it looks to me as though the, the solution could be something like, you know, legislation with nuclear disarmament in which we say we're not going to let this technology get around too much. Or the solution might be something like, uh, you know, the United States, we say everyone has the rights to information, and if you can implement this, then it's your right to do so. Uh, nobody knows for sure where this is going to go, but it's it's really interesting to me to try to figure out, am I worried about my neighbors, if they have access to the Internet and a spare $100 on a weekend, am I worried about them building a little robot that's going to keep an eye on me or you know invade my lawn?
1: <laughs> well, yeah, I mean you talked about a potential <laughs> application of this with regard to – uh, Roomba, which is uh, iRobot, very famous robot manufacturer, uh, have, have invented a little bot which will vacuum your floors. Uh, it's very small um, and it sort of scoots around and, le- and learns uh, to, to recognize your floor and where the walls and objects are in your house so it doesn't get too clumsy. Um, but you said that there were, you know, because of the latter applications that were made for Roomba in which users or owners of the bot could log into it from afar when they weren't at home, uh, well, then someone could easily hack that, get inside the bot, and therefore get inside someone's home. And even when they were there, they could uh, be kind of hopping on the back of it digitally anyway, and watching the owner as they go about their business, doing you know whatever private things they are, hiding money in their house, and um, they could learn a lot about a person and be completely invisible because uh, the owner would, of course, think that Roomba was just going about its business and uh, and hoovering up dust.
2: I think the project was named Connect R, uh, which was what iRobot was developing at the time. And they ended the project uh, with these very concerns, I think, in mind. Um, but, you know, it's funny to me because when we begin to abstract the notion of a robot, it, we stop... We stop seeing the robot as an Android, and we, we even stop seeing it as a little device that's moving around on our floor doing a manual task for us. Part of the reason why I talk about this Connect R and about Roomba and the house is because I'm very interested in seeing what the relationship between surveillance and robotics is. Um, if the Connect R is moving around the house and if someone can log into it, then that presents a security concern for my house. But at the same time, if I'm carrying an iPhone around, and I'm using the iPhone, and there's a terms of service agreement there that I've already signed that says that the data that goes in and out of that iPhone is available to a corporation to use as they see fit, and I don't know what they're doing with it for sure, then that seems to me to present the same concern, because it might be that the iPhone that we're carrying around in our pocket is a kind of robot, and that that robot is performing surveillance on us. Now, I go into this little digression because I want to come back to the Connect Roomba link here. Um, There were some Swedish developers that developed something called the Googlebot. And I, I think that this may be the future of publicly available robots because the Googlebot basically goes around your house and it looks at the books you're reading and the clothes you're wearing and your behavior patterns and do you have a kid or a pet? Do you have a swimming pool or a car? It collects that information. Now, let's say that that information is valuable to Google, because it certainly is, and that's why Google gives us email accounts and and keeps track of what we're searching for. I mean, as as an advertising company, they want to know our consumer habits, our interests, our dreams, income, etc. So, for me, the scenario of Google or some corporation saying, hey, look, we will give you a little robot, and if you let that robot kind of wander around the house and keep track of what you're doing and what you read and what you wear then we will also provide you a robot that will, say, sweep the floor and do the dishes and walk the dog and open the doors for you. Uh, It will carry the phone over. It will be a phone. It will be a CD player, et cetera. As Eric Schmidt, the CEO of Google, has said, the the current model of the Internet, the, the economic model essentially, is online services in exchange for personal information we're already interacting with software robots in this way. We already use our iPhone, we already do Google searches, and that information that we share, we share, it's valuable information, and we share that information in exchange for online services. So I see no reason why it's going to take too much time for physical services via robots to also be exchanged for personal information. I think that this is the future of personal robotics, and I think that this is also an argument for open sourcing a lot of this technology.
1: Does that make some sense? Absolutely. No, it's, in, it's very interesting indeed as well. Well, let's um, turn now to get a bit of, more of a flavor of the narrative in your book, which is really based around a trip you made to Japan. Um, and there was a very interesting set of visits you made to some robotics designers and manufacturers. Now, one of the first was Cyberdyne, one of the first mm-hmm. that comes up in the book anyway. Now, if anyone is familiar at all with the Terminator series, they will understand the reference in the company name. Um, uh, but I, I think it's very interesting, as you point out in the book, that there's not necessarily any uh, very uh, dark connections to the film. Actually, Cyberdyne is a very positive company. That's certainly the impression you give. I mean, can you tell us a little bit about why that is and about the visionary who founded it?
2: Yeah, indeed. I mean, uh, senkai senator is a really interesting man. He he began the project really trying to figure out how he could help people. Uh, he He's a very classically Japanese man who I found to be intensely polite, very bright eyes, uh, and really a kind spirit. And he, he wanted to try to figure out how do we get folks that might be crippled back up and get them walking. How can we use technology to fundamentally help people? And so uh, he spent. He, he began. Uh, he had a prototype running. I think it was in 1997, and he won a fair amount of awards and recognition for it. And it was essentially a cross between. Um, it's kind of like a carapace that you wear. Um, it's a little bit of a cross between a stroller and a football outfit. Um, it, it connects to your leg, uh, for example, also other other limbs. But as as your muscles flex. It senses that there is some impulse there, electrical impulse, and then it drives the machinery based on that impulse. So it's really just translating uh, myoelectric data off of your skin mm. to servo drivers on the on the machine itself.
1: Sorry, it's not actually uh, surgically invasive at all, is it?
2: No, and he made an interesting division for me which was that we there are two kinds of cyborgs. There are the cyborgs that have the technology in their body and there's the cyborgs that have the technology outside. Mm. And because there's no breaking of the skin that his technology does, that means that this kind of cyborg is a kind of a I don't know if it would be car- carapitic car- like I, I, like it's a carapace rather than something that's inside you, right? Um, the the thing about it that also is really nice is that it's very light and it has an enormous uh, strengthening ability. So I I had one on my arm and I was able to lift, you know, it's like basically a sack of rice. Um, would be what I would normally be able to lift with one arm and I was able to lift two of them quite easily. Mm. Uh, and I didn't even really feel much on my arm so it's, it's an interesting experience and I think that a lot of what will be happening with this kind of technology will be will be elective or optional later on. People can use these for doing things like hiking. I might be perfectly in good shape but I want to just carry more stuff. And his goal in thinking along those lines was, well we can help rescue workers. We can help firefighters and, and people that are actually trying to, they're in perfectly good health themselves but but now we actually augment and increase their strength and endurance and the things that they can do. So the, so the military in the U.S., I think it was the first to notice this technology uh, and thought about using it for their soldiers, knocked on his door and, and he said, hey, we'll give you this great contract and please come join us. Then he gave them the thumbs down. He said, no, no, there's, there's enough there's enough people that are already hurt. I don't need to use this technology to hurt more people. Let's let's try and push in the other direction and he's he's stuck to that vision ever since. Uh he spends a lot of his time in hospitals. Yeah. I mean, how
1: how much do you think he is uh, a real rarity? Do you think uh, many other roboticists have that same uh, level of, of of principles behind their work?
2: I do think it's rare. Uh I I think that it's rare regardless of the industry that someone's working in for a person to stick to that kind of vision and to preserve that sort of a high moral ground. Um, And I don't think it is – I think that roboticists, just like software engineers or just like car manufacturers or just like anybody on the planet, um, generally just try to do something that can make money and can move ahead their individual work and uh, and keep their lives in good shape individually – so um, I think it's rare for anybody to think like this. Um, but that might be the very danger.
1: Yeah, and I mean, this is one of the big discussions that's happening right now about all kinds of technology. It's about the you know, the fact that you can't really extract morality from the development of technology. And all technology has design behind it and various kinds of design. Um, and when you see the the huge societal impact that, any kind of technology starts to make in our world anyway, well, then I think people have to, you know, they, they start refusing to see it as, you know, uh, morally neutral or socially neutral. Actually, all technologies have this kind of function, functionality and agency embedded within them. But now to talk about a very different kind of moral question, you went to visit AIST, as well, another manufacturer who had come up with um, the HRP4C mm-hmm. uh, kind of fembot, as uh, you called her. Tell us a little bit about her, because I thought your reaction to that experience was really fascinating.
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, AIST has got a lot of really interesting work happening there, and those guys, those guys are, are a fantastic group. They they were very nice and and showed me through their labs. The this fembot is is interesting because I think it's it's one of the two best Android projects that I'm aware of right now, um, and what I realized while I was there was that to get back to this question of the uncanny valley, as an Android becomes more and more human like, you know, as we build a robot that has two arms, two legs, and a head what we're really doing is we're kind of crossing a line of functionality. There's no reason whatsoever to build robots that are like humans. Mm. Uh, Humans, we have this really precarious balance, which we've, which we've evolved into so that we can use our hands. Um, And so to try to make a robot that does the same thing and follows literally in our footsteps is absurd. Like the last design you want for a robot to have is like a really, is a really high center of gravity balancing on two little tiny feet um, with only eyes that are set forward on the head at the top of it. You know, what makes a lot more sense is something that's very low center of gravity, round, rolls around, it can see in all directions, for example. So what what these guys are doing, and I believe that they were the very first to actually build an Android, is that they're building an entertainment system. This particular computer is shaped like a human, so that humans can identify with the computer more. Mm. And, and Android is is really, I think, nothing more than that. It is a method of making a human identify with a pack of hardware so that we can then more easily talk with it and listen to it. Uh, We can feel more comfortable with it moving around us uh, than, for example, say, uh, a swarm of spheres that are moving around our head as we're walking down the street. Um, One might be more cool and might be less invasive or might, might draw less attention. But I think ultimately human beings are, if I can use the word programmed, to be comfortable with other human beings around. And so what these guys have said is, all right, that's the direction we need to go. We need to make robots look like humans so that humans are comfortable.
1: Mm, absolutely. But you weren't very comfortable <laughs> with itch um, RP4C, were you? Because um, she was actually suddenly uh, – once she was animated in front of you, she became very attractive. And you started to have – a sexualized reaction to the robot. It
2: it might just be cuz I'm a little kinky, but, but I don't <laughs> think so. I mean the the robot is designed to mimic a young attractive female. Mm. And and in that the designers were were successful. Um you know, my my own hardware didn't respond as I as I would have thought looking at the thing when it was still but then when it began to move i began to like really have grading desires on one level i was like there's something mildly sexy about it i mean it, it was realistic enough but at the same time because it wasn't realistic i found that i had almost a kind of a fetish for it mm. um and and i'm not i'm not usually one to dive into these these sorts of problems so i was really quite surprised by it but um, there 's something very subtle that they 've done that is also very powerful, and I think that they 're aware of it because uh, this robot was also a fashion model, um, and the robot 's been used in this kind of a context of here is a fertile female that is presenting something whether it 's a song or a dress so these These designers are guys like they 're the first ones that invented the android right so they've got they 've got their finger on some button and i'm going to be very interested to to track their work over the coming decade for sure um but i think that there are there are a lot of these pleasure robots out there you know there are various models that um you know kind of like if you make real doll and something that moves um, people use for various fantasies and activities. Um, and I think that's going to continue, just like the military, to be a large industry. I mean, that's what certainly, I think the internet, for example, and almost all emergent technologies have been driven by primarily pornography and war. Those have always been sources of, of great income and staple for new tech. So, I don't think it's going to be any different here.
1: Yeah, well, we're aware that humanity is obsessed with sex and death, so it's not necessarily surprising. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> Well, what I wanted to ask you next was about some of the kind of forward uh, imagined implications of of these bots, because, well, as they become more ubiquitous, I mean, we talked about this in, in a military sense, which is quite a specific sort of scenario, quite a specific context, but among human beings and a kind of in public life, as it were, robots, especially in Japan are kind of uh, you know they're they're fantasized over in a way not dissimilar to the kind of things you were talking about as a reaction to HRP4C people have a really strong reaction to robots as a kind of celebrity and the the greatest of all of these celebrities is surely Asimo and mm-hmm. one of the really interesting observations that I thought you made was that robots were kind of a little bit like slave superstars Mm -hmm. Uh, can you explain that a little bit
2: yeah i I can try but frankly this this subject really confuses me which is part of the reason why i was writing about it i I ultimately try to write these books to try to figure this stuff out Mm. um asimo has a very curiously honored position in which uh as a diplomat as a music conductor as somebody that has quote-unquote met uh prime ministers and presidents and superstars and multi-multi-billionaires. Mm. This is a very honored piece of hardware. But at the same time, when ASIMO is presented uh, for marketing and publicity purposes, ASIMO is presented as something like a slave. So there is this weird dissonance that's happening here. Uh, I think psychologically among us humans, we're not sure what really to make of this. And I think it, it, it really gets to the core of what a robot is because do we think of it as a human being because it sort of beguiled our neurons? We, we think it looks like a human being, therefore we think it must be a human being. Or is it simply a computer that has been uh, given some clothing? And and I think that that dichotomy um, is something that showed up first uh, for me in science fiction with C-3PO. Um, Mm. C-3PO is clearly a slave, but at the same time, C-3PO has this sort of noble demeanor and this kind of snotty attitude that lets him come off like nobility. And Asimo, I think, is like that too. Um, And I wonder whether or not it's because if we say there is an abstraction of identity here and that like a Hopi Indian god of rabbit, you know, every instance of the rabbit is the god, Um, It might be that we can sort of psychologically reconcile those differences. Um, It might be that it's just confused marketing on Honda's part, or it might be that there really is something about robots that we feel both is an overlord and a slave, Um, that we as human beings are something in between um, divinity and hardware, and that as we create both of those, in that both take the form of robots, um, we're trying to figure out what our relationship to our robots and our technology is so I, I i don't have a simple answer for it i think that there's a number of books that could be written on the topic but in the end i guess what i was most stunned about with asimo was his despite his massive popularity and despite what seems to be the most recognizable robot on the planet how the technology for all that i was able to gather was disappointingly simple um you know now uh which is a very very small robot only about 22 inches tall um is a much more advanced robot as far as i can tell it yeah. costs much less because all asimo really is is a kind of an avatar um there is somebody that drives asimo uh, there are there's some autonomy that uh, now i'm not 100 confident as i talk about this because honda wasn't very forthcoming with some of these details um but as far as I can tell, I, I've, I've had interaction with people that drive Asimo. Um, Asimo, or Osimo is more appropriately pronounced, has some autonomous functions. But in essence, it's an avatar. It's, it's a hardware prosthetic. And when I consider that Honda and Toyota both are developers of this kind of prosthetic, I think that they really are looking at the robot as a new kind of car. Uh, it's a new kind of transportation vehicle. First, mm. it's not it's not an autonomous slave, and it's not some Uber AI god that is going to lead us forward uh, into the future. It's a tool that allows us to move around. And I think, it, and I, this is my own my own philosophy here, that both Honda and Toyota are viewing robots as transportation methods, and ASIMO is just marketing that that may have gotten out of control. <laughs>
1: Well, we know that the idea of telepresence is getting more and more popular anyway. Um, And so you can imagine that robots as avatars, and you talk about Avatar the film and Surrogates, another film, uh, much less well received than Avatar, but with a very similar idea that uh, human beings would be able to plug themselves into, uh, literally plug themselves into more attractive and powerful versions of themselves and then interact through their avatars and through their avatars only. So this then raises some questions about what is inside a robot, and some of the earlier chapters you talked about things like machine intelligence, artificial intelligence, you know, and the Turing test, and various, you know, conjecture about what makes a robot able to think. Now, the now Alan Turing originally said that if a, a a machine passed the Turing test and was uh, understood as being uh, conscious and and intelligent, well, that was enough. If it could trick you, then it may as well be conscious and intelligent, even if it wasn't, even if it was just a very clever trick. Um, and as you note, Turing later revised that um, assessment, that, that uh, idea. But it struck me that you quoted um, Hiroshi uh, Ishiguro, one of the foremost... Uh, roboticists in in the world today um, because he said that a robot can have a soul as long as people believe it so this is a similar kind of idea but applied to a slightly different uh, material um, an ethereal one at that the idea of a soul the idea of a spirit tell us why that has some you know serious implications for what robotic robotic engineers are doing with machinery and why machine intelligence and artificial intelligence might not actually be the really crucial thing uh, in robots of the future.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, I think both Turing and Ishiguro are taking very reductionist and mechanistic perspectives. Um, They both are saying, look, if we can say that those robots are fulfilling a role, then we can say that the role itself exists, whether it's intelligence or spirituality. and that that to me doesn't make much sense because, as far as I can tell, I don't know everything, and uh, just because I perceive something doesn't mean that it's real. I'm, uh, for example, I don't think that that machines need to have human intelligence. I think human intelligence is not the only kind of intelligence, and I don't think it's necessarily the best. Um, just as in the days of Galileo, uh, you know, we may not be the center of the universe. Uh, there may be other orbits happening around us. It, it may be that human intelligence is not the most evolved. Uh, cephalopod intelligence is a very interesting branch of, branch of research right now. And Corvid intelligence as well are both different kinds of intelligences in squids and in birds that clearly have the ability to recognize cause, effect, psychology, communication, group dynamics. Um, Also, you know, within cetaceans, there are huge branches of of research that are being done there in which we're beginning to find out that there's almost kind of a grammar that whales and dolphins use, uh, that they have means of communicating that are far more advanced than we'd guessed. And just because we don't know what that kind of intelligence is doesn't mean that it's any less intelligent than us. Um, It's a bit like saying human beings are the most beautiful animal ever made. And a hummingbird is just a distortion of what it is to be human being, and and its wings are sort of like badly built arms. If we we build those kinds of analogies around what we think intelligence is, then it seems as though if we look at something that we think is acting intelligent and we don't recognize it as acting intelligent, to say that it isn't intelligent is a mistake.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you do kind of say, though, that in your eyes – Machines would only really be able to achieve uh, the status of human intelligence if you could get three of them to sit around and tell jokes with each other and be very social in a very human way. Is that sort of your way of of, um, kind of jokingly suggesting that it's a kind of pointless uh, pursuit?
2: yeah I do think it's largely pointless um I think it's going to be pursued anyway um as all technology there's it's an explosion of development. There's not a single track that we follow on technological development um and so somebody's going to be developing humans robots that mimic humans as much as possible. What I'm trying to say there, though, is that the, the things that I believe make us intelligent in our own particular way of being humans is our ability to be social and our ability to make jokes and our ability to spend time together and to balance dialogue because I think language may be the most advanced technology we have that we use the most fluidly. And if a robot is something that is able to perform a human task or to replace a human, then I think it certainly needs to be able to do that with language. I think it certainly needs to be able to pick up that, that utility, that tool, that technology of language, and apply it in subtle and imaginative ways. Um, then I think we really have something that we could say is intelligent in the way that I at least think of humans as being intelligent and uniquely intelligent. Uh, that's to say, while corvids and cephalopods are intelligent also, I don't see them sitting around in bars and telling jokes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, well, you know, ideas about intelligence aside, uh, out of all the robots that you encountered in, in writing this book, what w- what were the ones or what was the one which um, stood out to you as being the most you know, useful um, object of, of development given the kind of functionality it had and given the kinds of functions it could perform for us? Which was the best one? You know, which was the one that you thought spoke volumes about the potential in our future
2: well i think the one the one that definitely was my favorite um was now and now is produced in paris france uh by a company named aldebaran and i visited their offices there and uh now is a a very i mentioned now in comparison to asimo uh, it's Mm. a very small robot it's only a couple feet tall uh like you know just not even a meter uh there's a you know, there's all kinds of these different capacities that this robot has built into it. Um, and I think that what these engineers were thinking was, let's take something that we use today for communication, such as mobile computers, let's use an iPhone as an example, um, and let's give it some mobility, and let's give it some some toys that the user can play with. Let's give it some learning algorithms, let's give it some, some perceptive capabilities, and Let's then see what people do with it. So there's an inversion of the thinking here, which is that A, now is a social object. It's a social computer. Um, Just like Facebook or LinkedIn or Twitter are social pieces of software, this is a social piece of hardware. And and just as Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn – Assume that you are interacting with somebody with the same tool, the engineers at Aldebron also assume that a now user will have interactions with another now user as it's as it's conducting these social interactions. So like just as a, as a short laundry list, I mean this robot has a video camera, there is a vocal synthesizer. It has these uh, emotional expression capacities that can kind of move and and its face and and gestures uh, are designed to represent emotions. And can recognize your voice. It has Wi-Fi. It runs under Linux. Uh, it has a, a huge number of joints. There's like 23 different degrees of freedom, and it has little hands that can grip. And and if you if you put the thing in its hand, it can carry it around. Um, now, the core hardware is similar to ASIMO. Um, they've made it very very small. You know, I said it's about the size of a large puppet. Um, but one of the things I find interesting about this is that because it's built around open source that means that users are able to customize it and push it in directions that the authors of the system weren't able to imagine this in my book addresses a lot of the problems around warfare i think it also opens up a lot of possibilities for improvement uh around what robots can be doing because you're actually then asking all the users to apply their imagination to it Um, and i think that As with, like to go back to the question of morality, there's kind of a balancing effect that open source offers in which a lot of people working together kind of have a a self guiding mechanism as they agree to adopt some methods and some moralities more than others. We might say, okay, now it is good for us all to use now for talking with one another, as though you might use a telephone, and it's not good to use now as as a machine gun bearing mini terminator. so I think, I think that, that it's not just that the design of the robot is very flexible, it's not just that it's consumer electronics, but there's actually thinking behind it, which hopefully ensures that the people that continue to author the details of this, that is the users, um, are there to help regulate things and, and see that the development is something that serves us more than, than hinders us, you know?
1: Yeah, I think that ties everything up because it brings together the development of the of the machine that we're talking about and the potential uses for it and of course the human element within it which i think has been central to all the things that we've been talking about today
2: Mm -hmm. um
1: and yeah like as you said this idea of of robots as slaves is something you want to get away from so if you create a a bot that is kind of has a, a role which is not just as a subordinate but which is actually you know encourages Uh, discussion and productivity and it has that social element that's a good way of getting out of that sort of slave loop isn't it um because you open the book the very first thing the introduction of the book is all about a very impressive uh young man who was uh, you know discovered in the late 18th century in america um but who was at that time a slave um and you had this Excellent, I thought, excellent historical analogy with, um, you know, there there was an entity who had great capabilities and great functionality, but, you know, because of all kinds of things, all kinds of prejudice, and they were on a lower rung of society. And so it's interesting that your book is trying to get people to think about where in in the social hierarchy that exists around us, where we would position a robot. And that we would make quite uh, conscious decisions uh, about where we'd want to place them, and how that represents our development as a species.
2: Yeah, there, there's a there's a thing that concerns me, and the reason I started the book there is because a I think society is largely founded on slavery. I think it's the exploitation of our fellows that allows us to build society, uh, to make money. Generally speaking, mm. I don't I don't like that that possibility, but it seems so far to me to be the case. Um, Meanwhile, B, we have the fact that automation and um, automated manufacturing in particular allows us to increase our profits while decreasing our expenses. Um, And C, every time there's a revolution in society, it's when there's a radical disequilibrium between the people that are being exploited and the folks that are exploiting. Mm. So, if I put those three things together, it looks to me as though we are in the process of creating a lot of automated slaves, and that we might think as science fiction tells us that those automated slaves will rise up some way someday they will like open their little eye and they 'll see clearly around them and they 'll say i 'm being exploited by my human creators, and then they will like you know crush us under their metal foot. But I don't think that's what really is going to happen. What I think really is going to happen is that we humans will wake up and say, wait, we are inside the robots we have created and we are being exploited. We have ultimately exploited ourselves. And that then there will be, I think, some big changes in society because we will then realize the mistakes that we're making with computers and robots in particular by assuming that computers are not us. So, we robot is ultimately my effort of saying, look, these are computers that we are inhabiting. We are inside of them. And as we assign ourselves roles of slavery and masterdom, we need to really pay attention to why and what our motivations are. Because otherwise, we're going to end up with some big problems on our hands. And we're going to look back maybe a couple centuries in the future and say, you know, we should have thought that through a little bit differently. Maybe really robots aren't another species, maybe it isn't some science fiction conceit. Maybe it's just that robots are simply us.
1: Well, on that tantalizing and preemptive note, I think we should end what has been a fascinating discussion. And I wanted to thank you again for your time um, and uh, you know for the book, which was excellent and which I would encourage all of our listeners today to read. Um, so thank you very much, Mark, for, for being here.
2: Absolutely, Chris. Thank you. Thank you for your time and your thoughtful questions. It's really a pleasure.
1: You've been listening to an interview with artist and author Mark Stephen Meadows about his book, We, Robot, which is published by Paul Grave Macmillan and which is available now. I'm Chris Baranyuk, and I'm already looking forward to episode three.